Well, I'm pretty sure that um, among the things that you are least interested in hearing at this particular moment in the service is uh, a complaint from me about the sermon that I'm going to preach, uh, about how hard it was to get this sermon written, about uh, how long it's been since I've had this much trouble uh, with the message, about how late in the week it was before I finally had any kind uh, of breakthrough. But humor me for just a second, because I think there are perhaps a couple things to learn from this. Um, one of the first questions that you have to answer if you're going to preach a message is, what exactly are you going to preach on? Uh, many churches uh, solve this problem in part by having a, a, a lexical uh, outlay. There's, a, there's a, a, a liturgy that you follow. There's a sort of a three-year outline of Scripture. And so there's an Old Testament reading and a Psalms reading, and then there's a Gospel reading, and there's some other New Testament reading. And you just choose from one of those four passages. Uh, we don't head down that path. We um, uh, work our way through books. And so sometimes it takes us a long time to get through a book, as it has with this one. But generally, work our way through books with some uh, acknowledgement being given to the big events in the church calendar, Advent and Lent, uh, or other things that come up. We occasionally head down a path for a little while. Um, I map this stuff out a year in advance or longer, and there's a little bit of flex in there, but usually I know what I'm going to preach on months in advance. Not so much this time. We've flexed a little bit around this theme of poverty, and then last week it was pretty late before we decided we were going to do this Ascension Sunday theme. It's now Memorial Day weekend. That presents some opportunities. So I was just bouncing all over. Uh, I really wanted to go back to the Ascension because I don't believe that um, we really have truly looked at what the advantages are that Christ is in heaven, uh, an advocate for us. But I felt great pressure to finally end this series on Philippians that we began back <clears throat> in 2009. And so um, today... Uh, we're going to do that. But even having decided that, it was still a challenge to know what to do. The last few verses can feel very uh, perfunctory. And sometimes when you come to the end of a, of a long series, you go back and you review the high points. And there are some real high points when it comes to this letter from Paul to the church in Philippi. I mean, this whole idea of joy in the midst of suffering or unity in the midst of conflict or the example of Christ's humility, Christ being God but becoming a man in order to serve others. There's a lot there that, that was sort of crying out as opposed to these last few verses. Let me read them for you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 20 and following. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Uh, as I mentioned, some people can look at these and think that they're sort of throwaway lines. I nevertheless decided this is the place uh, to turn. And remarkably, and here's where I think there may be an opportunity for us to learn something. Remarkably, having decided that, the next challenge is not to 
come up with something to say. The challenge in preaching is almost never to come up with something to say. The challenge is figuring out what to leave out because there is so much here. And, and that is true even in these verses. Right? I mean, Paul says that, you know, those who are with me send greetings. This would be Timothy and Epaphroditus. The fact is, there is a lot to learn about Paul from the friendships that he has. He depends on his friends. And as 21st century Americans, we don't really get friendship very well. And there's a lot that we could learn from Paul. We could take this one step further because Paul's friendship with Timothy and Epaphroditus is more than simply a friendship. He, this would be more of a discipleship, mentoring relationship, which is what we are all called to. Right? It's not just our own spiritual growth that we need to be concerned about. We are told that, that we are to grow up in faith, and then we are to pass that faith on to others and to see them move in Christ-likeness. That is the, that's the assignment that gets given to us, that we should be nurturing the faith of those who are younger in Christ than we are. I'm struck by the sort of the hardship that is not stated but is present here. When this letter first was delivered, you have to know that the, the, the people, when they're hearing it for the first time, would have been very, very anxious to know who Paul is going to mention and what kind of, quote, housekeeping details he's going to address. Because this is not simply uh, a land before iPhones and Skype and Facebook, right, where you could keep up with people pretty easily. This is essentially a land before mail. I mean, there's, there wasn't a postal service that, that allowed you to stay in touch with people. You had to find somebody that was traveling somewhere and give them a letter and hope that they would find the people that you were writing to and deliver the message. And travel was monstrously hard. It, it, you know, it, it, it's nothing like today. I went to, to Texas this past week, and, um, you know, it's common to sort of complain about Air travel and, you know, long security lines and baggage fees and, uh, you know, bad food if you ever, were ever to get food and, uh, and just all the kinds of uh, challenges of travel today. <laughs> really, I woke up at 6, I woke up at 5 in the morning, I headed out to the airport at 6. I get through everything, sit down and wait until they call me. I get on this comfort controlled, climate-controlled environment where I, I sit down, somebody brings me something to drink, I have two hours and 17 minutes to read a book and to do some work, at which point I am in Austin, Texas. It's now, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning. I mean, it would take months for me, if this were the first century, to get to Austin, Texas. Traveling, walking, right? Wondering, will I find something to eat today? Will, will there be clean water for me to drink anywhere today? Where will I sleep tonight? Who knows? What about the wild animals and bad guys that are going to look to beat me up and, and, and kill me? What if I get sick while I'm traveling? I don't know anybody. As it turned out, uh, as I'm going to the airport, I broke a tooth the week before. As I'm going to the airport, this temporary crown fell out. So I texted my friend. I was going down there to meet with a couple guys, uh, long-term friendships. This is sort of 
my deepest accountability, any question asked, every question answered. We, I talk with these guys a couple times a week. We get together a few times a uh, year. Uh, one of them is Bob Thomas, who many of you will remember. Bob is a senior pastor here. And so this, these, these gatherings are a little bit of study time, a little bit uh, of golf, a little bit of lots of time just sitting around talking. So I texted my friend who lives in Austin and said, uh, temporary crown fell off. Can you get me a dentist appointment with your dentist this afternoon? Bob gets the flu. So he texts and says, God, I'm at the airport, sick, not getting on the plane, going home. So my friend says, you know, he wakes up and he gets two texts. He goes, Woodruff says, my tooth fell out. Please get me an appointment. And Thomas says, I'm sick. I'm going back to bed. And uh, he says, because I'm, I'm looking at these two messages and I'm thinking, time for new friends, right? I mean, it's like <laughs> young friends, too. I mean, he's, but no problem. I mean, I got into a dentist. No problem. I mean, this is easy. Paul is traveling, and it's hard. And when he gets places, he, he preaches the gospel and proceeds to get beat up and thrown in prison and start a riot. I mean, it's difficult. And yet, uh, he does this. And, and this is, you know, he's passing on information that people didn't have. Hey, we look at this first. There's a, there's a whole other message waiting to be preached around this line. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Wow! Caesar's household. I mean, the people, when they first get this, would have been shocked. Caesar was a psychopath of the first order. He not only had, had uh, much of Rome burnt down so that he could rebuild it the way he wanted it, and, and he blamed the Christians for this, he had at least a few garden parties where he lit up the palace grounds by lighting Christians on fire. I mean, this is a guy who's deranged in ways we cannot even comprehend. And, and yet, what we hear from Paul is that the, the saints in Caesar's household greet you. They're going to be unbelievable. Paul not only takes the gospel very strategically into Rome, the capital of the world, he actually goes right into the belly of the beast, right? He is there influencing Caesar's household. Now, there's no reason for us to think that, that, that Caesar's household refers to family members of Caesar. It's likely the guards that uh, had been assigned to watch over Paul. But, um, you know, these, these guys didn't have a chance. Paul is going to share the gospel with them. They are eventually going to, you know, wave the white flag and concede and come to faith. And so you're going to see this spread. There's a message waiting here to be preached on courage and on, on outreach I mean, we often don't say anything about our faith because we're worried that somebody may roll their eyes or think, or think less of us. Paul is preaching to people when he gets, again, beat up, thrown in prison, starts a riot. It doesn't matter. He's going to share the hope that is within him. And so he is, he is changing the world. There's a lot here waiting to be um, unpacked. I decided that the, the two words that needed to be focused on were the words glory and grace. The first one is found in the first verse of our text. Verse 20, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. 
St. Irenaeus said that uh, the glory of God is man fully alive. Jonathan Edwards reported that uh, the chief end of creation is to glorify God. I share these two quotes, sort of dissimilar quotes, in part to suggest that when it comes to glory, many of us think we know what it means, but if we get pushed a little bit too far, perhaps we don't know as well as we might. Paul is saying to God our Father, be glory forever and ever. The word he uses here is, in the Greek is doxa, from which, we, from which we get our word doxology. And there's, there's two big New Testament usages of this term. It is, uh, first of all, used as a noun and also then as a verb. As a noun, uh, glory refers to the inward majesty and moral beauty of God. So glory refers to the inward majesty or moral beauty of God. It's the visible splendor of God. It's the radiance that comes from his character. It is a manifestation of his majesty. It, it is, it is uh, as one writer said, the glory of God is what you see, experience, and feel when God goes public. There's this sense that, that God is, is so holy and so good and so uh, overwhelming that he radiates light. I mean, that his glory just exudes out from him. As a matter of fact, we're told in, in the book of Revelation that in heaven there is no darkness, in fact, no shadows in heaven because the entire place is filled with the glory of Christ. The, the, the character of Christ radiates in such a way that it lights up all of heaven. And so... Glory refers, in the first case, to the visible display of God's character. The second way that the word is used is as a verb. And here it, it, is, it is referencing actions that we take to affirm God's character. So to glory in God or to glorify God would be anything that we do in which we are focused on uh, singing about, meditating on, is somehow trying to live into God's character. To, to glory in God is, in one sense, to make much of God. It's, it's, it's to allow God to shape our lives. It, it, anything in which we are, we are being directed or we are responding to God's goodness and greatness and awesomeness and, and majesty and holiness and righteousness. Anything that sort of comes out of that is, is referred to as glorifying God. And you should know, this is what we were created to do. We were created to glorify God. Now please understand, because this is... This is, uh, this is not Christianity 101, at least not as the way most of us live it out. It's sort of a 201 uh, concept. 
There, there, there's almost a, another conversion point. There's, we, when we come to faith in Christ, we, when we repent, when we call out, when we realize that we're, we're needy and we need to be rescued by God and we ask for his mercy and we, we pledge to follow Christ, when that happens, there's a sense in which that's a, that's a very self-consumed response. I'm not saying it's a bad response. It's, it's, it's the appropriate response. But we are at the center of our world at that point. And we say we need God. And we do. But at some point, the light goes on and we realize God doesn't exist for my benefit. Right? I exist for his glory. This isn't about me. Ultimately, the famous first line of Rick Warren's book, it's not about you, it's not about me, it's not about us, it's about God. He's the the star. He doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. It's It's a fundamental reordering of the way we think about everything. We need to understand we were made for God's glory. We also need to understand that God is not in any way diminished if we don't give him the glory that he's due. Because we, we, we actually can't add anything to God. God is perfect. He's complete in every way. He has always been perfect and complete. He has existed in the, in the perfect, joyful fellowship of his own triune self. He he has been perfectly complete from before time began when there was nothing else except him. And he will be perfect forever. He doesn't need our worship in order to be completed. But we need to worship him in order to be completed. We were made to worship. God. We were made for a relationship with God, and we are only completed through a relationship with God. And when we understand who He is, worship is the natural response. This is something that we have to do. When you, when, you, when you get a greater understanding of who God is, the default response is awe. It's, it's, it's to worship, it's to be amazed. Right? You have no choice. When you're in the presence of beauty, when you're in the presence of goodness, you recognize it as beautiful and good. And and so if we fail to worship God, he's not diminished, but we are, because we're going to worship something. That's just the way it is. That's the way we were made. And so it's either going to be God, or it's going to be something smaller. This is uh, commencement month. May, lots of graduations, lots of graduation addresses. Many painfully inane and uh, full of really bad advice. Um, Some of it is profound. Some of it is just very thoughtful. And uh, some of the commencement addresses that have been given are worth going back and, and rehearsing. Uh, one of the ones that has uh, sort of stood out in the last uh, 10 years or so is an address by the now late David Foster Wallace, who gave um, uh, a commencement address at Kenyon College. 
I'm going to read to you a section of this. I'm picking up sort of mid-address, mid mid-thought. He says, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for choosing God or some spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when the time comes and age starts to show, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Right? Foster Wallace is saying, look, we're all going to worship something. That's the way we were made. We don't have any choice. We're going to focus on something. We're going to orient our lives around something. It can be money. It can be power. It can be pleasure. It can be sex. It can be your career. It can be nature. It can be yourself. You can worship a whole bunch of different things. The ultimate choice is between worshiping God and worshiping anything else. And if you worship God, then you are moving in the direction of being completed. Because that's what you were made to do, and nothing else can satisfy at the end of the day. These can satisfy for a time, but they can't ultimately deliver. And so you will be smaller. And so we need to understand that when Paul writes this statement, and he says here, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever, he is both stating what will be true, This will happen. God will receive all the glory in the end, forever and ever. And he's also giving us directions. We should glory in God. Whose glory are you concerned with most? Whose fame, whose reputation, whose glory are you most concerned with? A bit of an aside, but I was, I was very encouraged when I heard a clip of an interview with um, Philip Umber, the White Sox pitcher who just recently had the 21st perfect uh, game in Major League Baseball history. So perfect game, right? 27 up, 27 down. Nobody got on base. No, nobody, got, nobody got a hit. Nobody walked. Nobody got hit by a pitch. Nobody got, nobody got on base. 21 times it's happened history of Major League Baseball. And as you may know, that if a pitcher has even really a shutout going, let alone a no-hitter or a perfect game, then late in the game, nobody talks about it. Nobody talks to the pitcher. Right? Nobody goes up and says, six more outs and you'll have it. Right? I mean, it's just nobody, nobody says anything. And so the pitcher generally, you see them there, sitting by themselves. No one is saying anything to them. And so somebody interviewed Umber, and they said, so what were you thinking of? You know, seventh inning, eighth inning, what were you thinking? And, and uh, Umber said, I was trying to figure out how I might be able to use this for the glory of God. If this is going to happen, if I'm going to get a perfect game, 
then how could I use this to glorify God? Right? Those, are, those are good questions for us to ask. <clears throat> Second word is the word grace. And this comes in verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Uh, again, easy to just consider this sort of a uh, perfunctory sort of throwaway line, a, a just like sincerely uh, without much thought being given. But we need to understand that the word grace is at the very heart of the Christian faith. Right? There is no Christianity without grace. Uh, grace is, is getting what we don't deserve. Okay? Justice is getting what you deserve, which we don't want because we're sinners and we don't want what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, right? Being pulled over by the police officer but not given a ticket because the, the officer is merciful. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's getting something wonderful that you don't deserve. A relationship with God right? Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, a new start, that's all a gift. (laughs) We don't earn it. We can't earn it. We can't get there. It's impossible. So our faith is based on grace. We are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Grace is at the absolute center of our faith. And I come back to this word as sort of the final word of this letter from Philippians because it's my conviction that a lot of people still don't get what grace is. A lot of Christians say, I have made a decision for Christ. Christ is my Savior and Lord. I am following Christ. And I'm trying to be good enough so that God will accept me. That's not grace. That's a misunderstanding at the the most fundamental level of how this works. We add nothing to the finished work of Christ. Eternal life is a gift from God given to those who, who place their faith in Christ. It's about God's gift to us. It's not that we're good enough. It's that God is that amazing. And so we lean into his grace. And when we get that, then we're looking to serve and to love and to give our life away because it's the logical response to the grace that's been given to us. So the people who get grace, right, are gracious. And there's lots of people who are not very gracious. And grace is, really, when you see grace, one of the responses to grace is to go, well, that's just crazy. Right? This is wrong. That's not, that's not just. Because it's not. <laughs> I, uh, this week I read a story about a guy um, by the name of Will Campbell who uh, was a divinity student. He and a friend of his were divinity students from, uh, at a school in New England and this is the 60s, and they, had, they were taking a year off school and were working with the civil rights movement down in Mississippi. And during the course of the year that they were working in Mississippi, uh, Will's friend, uh, African-American divinity student, was shot and killed by a deputy sheriff who was also a member of the Ku Klux Klan. 
his uh, offense was asking to use a phone at a, at a store. And the, there was an altercation of some sort, and it eventually resulted in um, this deputy sheriff shooting his friend, shooting this uh, African-American student in the, with a shotgun at close range, and he died. A while after his death, a guy came to Will Campbell and said, So, does God love this deputy sheriff? Does God's grace extend to this member of the Ku Klux Klan that murdered your friend? Campbell said that it took him a while to formulate an answer, but once he did, it changed his life because he had to realize, he had to face that, yes, God's grace extended to this deputy sheriff. And he had what he referred to as an earthquake of grace that went on in his life, and it led him to resign his position with the civil rights movement and to move to Mississippi to work as what he called uh, an apostle to the rednecks and to go out with the grace of God to these racists and to tell them about God's love. That's shocking stuff. When you get the glory of God, though, then you, you will get the grace of God. Because the, the way this works is not, here's God, and here is the civil rights worker, and here is the Ku Klux Klansman, but here's God, and here's the civil rights worker, and here's the Ku Klux Klansman. And here's me. Right? The distance between God and those of us making our best efforts is huge compared to the difference between those of us who think we're doing well and those that we think are not doing well. Because we're all not doing well. We all are desperately in need of God's grace. And when you get that then you are freed up to share that grace with others. Grace is a pivot point in our relationship with God. It is about what he did. And so I want to ask you, I asked you, whose glory are you concerned with? I want to ask you, do you get grace? And if you do, are you being gracious? shockingly gracious towards others. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter, this, this entire book that you have given us, inspired by your Spirit to guide and direct us, to reveal yourself, to reveal your plan. Thank you for the Apostle Paul, here 2,000 years later, we're thankful that he was in prison so that he wrote letters as opposed to traveling uh, to Philippi to deliver this information face-to-face. We thank you for what we can learn from your word, and we want to confess that we are not nearly 
as concerned with your glory as we could be and should be. And that we are often confused about grace, dependent upon it, but then not very gracious towards others. Help us to truly be liberated by your grace, concerned for your glory, and to live in light of those two big overarching truths. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.